0: STV channel
1: 856 and on 92.7 and 106 FM. This is 702. Good evening, Mr. Steinberg. I hope you're well. Or should I say Professor Steinberg?
0: Um, uh, Mr. Steinberg or Johnny is good enough. Um, (laughs) uh, Very very good to be with you.
1: Great stuff, man. Um, I think, of course, uh, maybe the starting point should be, I mean, what, what is it like being at Oxford, being... Uh, a professor of African studies. How, how's it treating you thus far?
0: Um, well, it's been, uh, eight years thus far. And, um, I guess what's interesting about it is that, so I, I, I teach on a master's program, a one year master's program. Mm-hmm. And I guess about half of the students in the class each year are from somewhere in Africa, from all over the place. Uh-huh. Um, so this is this weird situation where you're in the UK, but you have a whole lot of Africans coming together to talk about the continent as a continent. Um, and some people go through really extraordinary journeys. People arrive Kenyan and they come out African. Um, it's a it's an interesting process to watch people go through. It's it's very it's very rewarding to be a part
1: of it. I mean that's that's a stunning way of putting it um, because I think to a large extent a lot of us claim to be African, but we always South African or Zimbabwean or Namibian or something else first before being African and being able to to reinforce being African is is uh, you know a valuable uh, a valuable skill, I think in, in in the modern era. but let's let's talk a little bit obviously about your um, you know the, this book of yours uh, that uh, Judge Dennis Davis, Uh, describes as luminously revealing the depressing reality of the country's criminal justice system. Now, obviously, I don't want to give spoilers away and we don't want to talk about plot by plot what the issues are. But the one thing that you've done really well is to use stories and narratives to, to basically peel back the layers of complex South African society. Yeah
0: so so i mean the way this story began was was it was actually reading the sunday times at the end of 2011 and reading a story about these two uh middle-aged men their names were um uh, King and Tukola Mokwena walking out of prison having spent the first 19 years of democracy in jail um for a murder which by the time they went out everybody agreed that they had not done mm. um and there was there was a story within the story that really grabbed me. In you know, they, they went to prison for murder. Um in nineteen ninety eight they went before the truth commission with the people who had actually committed the murder. Wow. The people who committed the murder said, We did it, it was politically motivated, we we're applying for amnesty. But these two guys are telling the truth, they had mm. nothing to do with it. And the Truth Commission, the Amnesty um, Committee of the Truth Commission said, We buy your story, we 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 buy every bit of it. We're going to give you amnesty. But these two other guys who said they haven't done it, there's there's nothing we can do for them because what we do is we give amnesty for crimes committed and they have committed no crime. So we can't let them out. Um, so the people who committed the crime stayed uh, uh, went out. Uh, the people who had not committed the murder and found by the Truth Commission not to commit the murder stayed in another 12 years. Um, and I found that an extraordinary story and I wanted to know... Wanted to know what the transition to democracy looked like when you were in that position. So I wrote immediately to Fusi Mo King. He wrote back to me. We ended up spending the better part of four years together, where I wrote his story, um, and the result was was One Day in Bethlehem. Hmm.
1: But I mean, and and I mean someone like that that has been hard done by the system. I mean, here you are out there saying that listen we had nothing to do with it the people who actually had something to do with it admit to it they get amnesty they get told listen you can go home to your friends your family and continue your lives but because the truth commission has been established to provide amnesty to people who you know who admit to have done wrong um, we can't assist you guys i mean surely someone else should have picked up the baton someone else should have looked at the situation and said hang on we have, you know, the wrong people in jail and we should let them go. Um, that clearly didn't happen. Does that leave someone bitter? Does that leave someone angry? I mean, surely I would be.
0: Well, what what happened to Fussi is that he, he was very, very bitter and angry in prison. Mm. Um, and about a year after he went to the Truth Commission, he was walking down a prison corridor and a, a social worker, um, an Afrikaans guy who who was the head of social work in the prison looked at him and said, I can see in your eyes. I can see by the way you move. I've been watching you every day. I can see that your anger is killing you. Um, mm. And if you let it go, you were literally going to die. And at the time, Fussi was sick. He had uh, stomach ulcers. He was chronically ill. Um, and he was completely taken aback by, by what the social worker said. And they ended up spending a lot of time together. And the social worker just taught him this this." lesson that sounds incredibly simple but it was is is really very very hard to learn and that's just what's happened has happened and if you keep fighting with with it you're going to smash your head against a rock until you die you can't win you have to let it go you have to look forward Um, and it was just this massive release this this revelation uh, he also felt a bit silly it's like it's so obvious uh so simple um and yet so hard actually to do and so he really attributes this chance encounter with a, with a chance encounter with a social worker in prison as, as literally saving his life, um, and giving him the wherewithal to try and uh, to, you know to try and put himself together again and and, and think of what life's going to be like going forward.
1: I mean, I find that and, – and now walking, you know, being out, being able to tell a story, having been released from prison, how does he view the world now? I mean, you know, there's obviously the issue of catching up with lost time, number one. But number two, the next best thing is how do you deal with what you had felt while you were behind bars?
0: So – you know, Futhi was released in, in, at uh, the beginning of, uh, in 2011, he, mm. he walked into, uh, Bok-le-Kong, the township, um, attached to Bethlehem in the Eastern free state with, um, you know, an unemployment rate of 50, 60%, a mm. lot of social problems, a lot of drinking. Um, and he was coming from a position where he'd, he'd missed out on an adult life. He was 25 when he went to prison. He was 44 when he walked out, um, Nine times out of ten, if you miss those years of your life, you're going to walk out and fail. Mm. Um, He walked out and really flourished in all sorts of ways. I mean, firstly, professionally, he, he was given a job as an assistant mechanic in the municipality and within a couple of years had shot up the ranks and was into middle management. In terms of his personal life, um, he, he met a woman and married her and adopted her children and treated them as, as his own and because mm. he was doing well looked after them. So here was somebody walking into a pretty dysfunctional world and he was a massively functional human being, sort of really, really unusually so, mm. um, emotionally, professionally. Uh, and I was quite intrigued about why. I was quite intrigued about what had happened to him those last 19 years to to, to make him such an unusual, such an extraordinary person.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, and and the answer I came up with in the end I'm not sure if it's right was quite a complicated story and it has to do with memory with personal memory and whether memory is right or wrong because long way working with him two, three years working with him but from the beginning the, the, the transcript of the trial that sentenced him to life in prison had been missing and, and the only evidence I had of what had happened were people's memories. And I sp- spoke to as many people as I possibly could. Two or three years in, the, the, the transcript was actually found. And I read it and was absolutely shocked and found that his memory of what had happened on the day of this murder hmm. um, w- was, was more than unreliable. It was really wrong. There were big chunks missing. I, I think that he no longer actually knew what happened on that day. Which which was such a, a shock to me. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, how do I how do I go on writing about this man when I when I can't trust his version of what actually happened? And you know, and I, I think what happened is, is really, really interesting. He he took the testimony that was given at the Truth Commission six yeah. years later, which I think was largely wrong, and transposed that back six years onto the actual day, and that became his memory. Um and and I think in a strange sort of way, he turned out to be a fundamentally decent, functional, good person precisely because his memory was unreliable, because he had the freedom to reconstruct who he was, what happened. And that's an incredibly counterintuitive thing to think. We generally think that, you know, our psychic mm-hmm. and emotional health depends on us knowing the truth and remembering. So it was quite an interesting journey to discover this man's relationship to his past and what it did to his relationship to the present.
1: I mean, uh, when you said that initially, I was—I uh, was thinking to myself. But you know exactly what you were saying there is that surely uh, the truth uh, is—you know—as as the old cliche goes, the truth is what shall set you free. But in this particular instance, as you had very uh, you know correctly pointed out or very insightfully p- pointed out is that th- that ability to reconstruct um willingly or unwillingly and and not being able to remember what happened at that po- particular point in time not being able to trust your own mind so to speak as to recall what actually happened uh at that point is is probably better because then you're able to just move on with your life and and and, and put the pieces back together and quite a few pieces missing there, uh, considering how much time he spent behind bars for something he didn't do.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are two ways of looking at, at unreliable memory. And one is, one is to say that that's, the truth is too hard to live with and we need to lie to ourselves and, and we're going to pay the price for lying. But then there's a very different way of looking at things, saying that you, here's a person who's in this incredibly, incredibly difficult situation and somewhere gathers the resilience to make make good in the world and where does that resilience come from and i think it comes from the creativity to be able to make up a past really mm-hmm. uh, you know i think it's, it's it's about human adaptation resilience and creativity rather than lying um and i mean the implications of that are, are a little mind-blowing you know it's to think that 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 if you make up your past you may actually be a morally better human being than if you don't it's very tricky terrain. Um, but it, it's the sort of stuff I was grappling with when writing this book. It really, it really confronted me, when you know, the facts of the story.
1: I mean, that for me is, is absolutely fascinating because, uh, you know, anyone else, uh, I would think, I myself, if I had to be faced with that situation of someone with an unreliable memory around what happened, I mean, there's so many things that you doubt about the story that you're about to embark on or the story that you're busy writing. Because what if it turns out that the guy is wrong and he had a role to play in all of this in the first place. And, you know, uh, the moment one senses inconsistencies, um, I guess it's human nature. One assumes that there's a lie a brew as opposed to, uh, the fact that someone legitimately could have forgotten or legitimately, um, that his mind is, is, you know, not damaged, but, but that it's, it's not quite able to, to put all the pieces back together. Yeah. You
0: you, you know, I I came to to the understanding I did just by spending a huge amount of time with Fusi and just absorbing this incredible gentleness and benignness and and this emotional competence and thinking, where does it come from? Um, You know, does it come from fictionalizing? And when I read the transcript of the trial and, and to my mind came to the conclusion that he was wrong about what happened that day, you know i i thought what what do i do next and and the first thing to do was to go to him mm. and and i went to him and we sat in my car for a long time and i explained to him step by step why i why i thought that his his memory of what happened on that day did not add up and he he listened quietly for a long time mm. and then eventually he said you know when you started working on this book you didn't know what you were going to discover that's what writing a book is about it's the process of discovery and, oh, sorry, I said to him, maybe I should just put this book down and, and not continue because it's not what we agreed to. Mm. And he said, you didn't know what you were agreeing to. Neither of us did. It, it was a process of discovery. And as long as you tell the story in a way which, you know, tell my version, tell your version and let the reader decide, then I'm okay with that. Um, and if he hadn't have said that, I would have stopped. You know, I would have put down my pen and gone on to something else. But he, he kind of gave me the license to continue by saying that. Um, which was quite a courageous, quite an interesting response on his part. Um, oh, most,
1: certainly. most certainly. I mean, yeah. it's uh, because ultimately, you know, <laughs> yeah, it is. Your, your, the opportunity to have your story told is literally seemingly slipping through your fingers, um, well. all because of uh, a wonky memory for whatever reason it may be. Um, and you say, well, listen, you need to tell the story the way that you see fit. I mean, that for me is, is, is quite stunning in itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did say as long as you include my version. So so mm. what he gave me license to carry on with was not to condemn him, which I didn't want to do anyway. Yeah, But it was to have two stories, these two conflicting stories sitting side by side um, and just allow them to be together. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what he gave me license to do, which I think was a, a really interesting call on his part.
1: Johnny, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the range of books that you have written over the years. And now we're going back to sort of your your broader works uh, a man of good hope is probably one uh, you know the one of those books that most people know uh, the number of course as well um, uh, midlands um, Seas west test uh, three letter plague and so on and so forth i mean i you know one can literally list each and every single one of your books and the one thing the one thread that sort of sticks out for me is a it's not just told from one location in south africa it's not just told from one particular experience what what drives your storytelling your narrative ultimately um,
0: you know i've I've always chosen to work very closely and and quite intimately with somebody who is very different from me mm. um, and, and that's really that carries that creates and carries the energy of the book I think in in each one you know it's it's you know it's a cliche to say it but South Africa is such a profoundly and divided isn't really the right word. They're, they're just they're d- they're different zones of experience that barely touch one another. Yeah. And we you know, we talk to each other, we don't hear each other, you know, we, we just there are these profound and fundamental gulfs. Um and what I try and do is is crush some of those gulfs and take the reader with me. Um so I'm always a character in the books that I write. I want the reader to know. I don't want to pretend that I'm omniscient and know everything. I want the reader to see me going into a, into a world that's strange to me and try to figure it out through a pretty close relationship with somebody else. So, so I guess that's kind of the common denominator between everything that I've written. Um, it's a South African exploring South Africa, trying to get to all of its many corners.
1: And, and I find that fascinating because to be honest, very few of us are willing to cross over that border, you know, cross the railway tracks, cross the highway, um, or whatever other uh, cliche you can imagine, you know, to, to sort of get to the other side and to get to know the people who live on that side of town. Because as you had pointed out, is that, and, and yes, I know it's, you, you, you steered clear of the word, but South Africa is an extremely divided space where, um, people could literally be living across the road from each other, but have completely different lives, completely different outlooks on on, on, on the world, uh, let alone the universe. And, you know, ultimately, very few spaces existing for people to get to know each other and to actually experience each other, so to speak. So, I mean, and, and I guess it would be a bit of a silly question to ask you. But do you see your books as as being an opportunity for people to cross that divide, to actually get to see what the other side is living like and looking like and, and feeling like?
0: Well, I, I mean, I think that, that reading a book and even writing a book has its limitations. It's not like you become somebody else. It's not like you, you really inhabit somebody else's experience or really know it properly. Um, but I think that you know i'm I'm not a religious person, I'm a secular person, but I think that the closest I can come to an experience that I might call spiritual um, or or at least cleansing, is to find a position in the world which is outside of me and look you know looks at me from somewhere else. You know I think that that's an incredibly humbling experience to think my most fervent beliefs, you know the things that I just intuitively hold to be true. I hold just for contingent reasons, just because of who I was born, the color of my skin, the neighborhood I grew up in, to be able to step outside of that and 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 look at oneself from a distance and look at one's contingency is is humbling and and really really important. Um, and I, I hope that a you know that somebody who reads my books I don't know I mean I can't I can't um, I can't dictate or expect what anyone's going to experience, but it's to have that similar feeling and think. You know, in this country, I'm actually quite small. I can step outside of myself and see myself as one of many. um, And it's a complicated place. Mm. And I think, you know, I think that that's it it sounds a little bit gooey, but I think it's politically very, very important. Um, You know, I I think that it leads to I, I think it's politically quite enlightening to think of oneself that way. Um, all, good poli- all good politics, which isn't violence, all good politics, which isn't an, e- an East side battle, is really about stepping outside of yourself a little and understanding that you're in this very complicated plurality and that there, mm, there are other mm. needs, other desires, there are other interests, and that they're legitimate.
1: I mean, and, and the reason why I asked you that question is because what we tend to do, um, and, and this is, I think, a global experience, you know, some parts of the world are far more parochial than others. Uh, but, what we tend to do is you you have your worldview, you have your struggles that you have to deal with uh, if you're living in green and i'm I'm really just being very generalist in what i'm in my descriptions here. But if you're living in green leafy suburbia, your biggest worry is potholes, traffic, and crime. you know, but if you're living in uh, in an informal settlement, it's the day to day struggle for survival. It is am I going to have enough water? am I going to have electricity by the time I get home? Am I going to have enough uh, money to buy food for the entire family? And um, interlinked, intermingled uh, is a lot of conflict between us, in essence. You know, um, we either irritate each other or we threaten each other or we are perceived threat to each other. And all too often, it's very difficult then to get all of those different personalities and ideas and thinking, races, ages, worldviews around the same table and have a conversation And say, this is my experience and please understand it and respect it. And uh, maybe next time when you come across me in the road, you'll feel less threatened or the next time you come across me, you'll feel uh, less presumptuous about what you assume I'm all about. I mean, we need your type of writing to tell those particular stories.
0: Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Again, I, sometimes I, I get a bit skeptical about what, what actually happens when a person reads a book, you know, and whether it's just something completely outside of your life, how much it actually changes. So I, I don't know. I mean, I hope so, but I, but I don't know. Um, I mean, one thing that happened writing this book is the the incident um, that took place in, in 1992 for which Fussi was convicted of murder mm. was a, a, a group of um, uh, seven or eight people black men were traveling in a Baki through Bethlehem, their car loaded with AK-47s. They were, they'd come from what was essentially a civil war going on in Paula Park in, in Um and they were traveling to comrades in KwaZulu-Natal to give them arms. Um, and a very complicated story, but they ended up outside the house of a, of, a, of a wealthy white family on the outskirts of Bethlehem. The police car pulled them over, and they opened fire and killed a young policeman. Um, one of the protagonists in the story was a seven-year-old girl who was inside that house. Mm. And she had spent the next, you spent you know, the, the next two decades haunted by what happened um, and mm. believing because the police told her that these men were out to get her. They were out to kill her father, to kill her mother. They were going to attack her house. And she read the book, and she said that she found it absolutely liberating to realize that this wasn't true that these, the, you know, these men had forgotten about her long ago and they were getting on with their lives and the siege that she'd lived under for two decades had lifted. Um, so there's, I mean, that I found quite gratifying that, that, that did move somebody involved in the story quite profoundly because she was able for a moment to step into the skins of, of these people who, she had, you know, who had, she had deeply, deeply feared all her life without meeting, without, without wondering about.
1: So as you said, I mean, you know, right at the onset, when I asked you, you said you make a point of, of writing stories and getting to know the people who you write about intimately. But, you know, these are people that you're not ordinarily connected to or, or people that you wouldn't ordinarily encounter. So you literally, uh, the way I understand it is that you go out of your way to say that, look, this is my context. I'm going to leave that context and meet someone removed from it and write their story. That's, that's the way I'm interpreting it. I mean, what does that process then do to you? What, what is your learning journey in that particular process? You know, I, I mean, going from whether it be uh, a man of good hope, whether it be this particular story, any of your stories, what were some of the most profound lessons that you learned about the people that you, that you wrote about eventually?
0: Um, so, I mean, I guess what I do is spend like two years of my life obsessively wondering what it's like to be somebody else. And and the corollary of that is I'm not imagining what it's like to be me. <laughs> so <laughs> in, a way, in a way, this sort of writing is a kind of escape from your world to get into another world. It's kind of a way of dreaming, of being elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a complicated business. Um, um, but I think that, I mean, one thing that it does is that it makes you realize that but for circumstance, you could have had those thoughts and those feelings and lived that life. Um, and therefore, although you're very different, there's also a huge amount that you share. Um, there's a there's a very wide space of common humanity, despite all the differences, and they are huge differences. Um, I mean, the thing that intrigued me most in, in my previous book, uh, A Man of Good Hope, which is about a, a Somali who mm-hmm. at the age of 19 put... You know, he was living in Ethiopia, he put $1,200 in his pockets and he headed south, no passport, moving illegally just because he's heard that there was money to be made in South Africa. He knew nothing else about it. He arrives in South Africa, he, he discovers it's incredibly violent to the Somalis but he keeps going because there's money to be made. And this man lives, he has a taste for risk which is completely beyond my comprehension. And so for me, my main quest in that book was was to try and get inside that skin, inside the skin of a person who is prepared to die young, who is prepared to, you know, to, to play dice with with his life um, over accumulating money. Um, and I thought, why, you know, why does he do that? That's, that was the deepest existential question that I could find about him. And it, it was one so foreign to me. Uh, and that, that became the book's work, is to find out why, to get deep enough under his skin to have a, if not a correct, then at least a satisfactory answer to that question.
1: Uh, And if you look at South Africa, the way that we are at this point in time, I think, uh, you know, COVID-19 aside, but COVID-19 definitely, I think, lifted the various layers of, of South African society from the one end being able to stay at home, uh, use, uh, you know, decent Wi-Fi to do, you know, work from home, et cetera, et cetera. Let the kids uh, do the education from home, um, you know, sort of the new normal and, and in being able to, inverted commas, embrace it versus stuck at home. Being stuck at home means I'm, I'm in a shack uh, by day, um, can't wait to escape to, to get to work, but I can't work because of lockdown and I don't have the luxury of working from home, et cetera, et cetera. There's, again, once again, all those various uh, contradictions about South African society. Looking at South Africa right now, what is your thesis, your summary of, of what we are facing in this country? Is it simple diversity and it's beautiful because we have so many different people and so many different opportunities? Or should we really start looking at ourselves seriously and saying, but guys, there's massive chasms between the people in this country?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think that, that COVID-19 is a, is a tragedy for South Africa. It's I think that the long-term consequences are are huge and difficult. Um, I mean, one thing's for certain is that we're going to come out of it a much much poorer country. Um, And when a country is poor, divides get deeper and inequalities get deeper. Um, You know, I think that there's gonna be a level of poverty which which hasn't existed in South Africa before and which its welfare system won't be able to get around as as much as before. Um, I think it's gonna be a harsher country. I also think that some of the country's deepest divides are not between rich and poor, but but among the black and white middle classes. You know, I think that that's that's where conflict is most deep and most bitter. And I suspect that that COVID nineteen is going to make that worse too. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, it's it all sounds pessimistic and bleak, but I think that I think it was an incredibly, incredibly unfortunate thing to happen. You know, the, the mm. Zuma years weakened South Africa a lot, mm. um, not being mean primarily economically, and so this virus hit us when we were already weak. Um, and I think that it's the, the damage it's going to do is huge. Um, it's, it's, going be, it's going to be a very difficult country to lead. It's going to be very difficult to have common purpose. I think it's going to be very fractured. You know, the one thing that makes people work together is just a common sense that in five, ten years' time, we're going to share a future together. Yeah. You know, we've been doubting that a lot. I think we need to doubt that more. I think politics is going to be really, really tough in the years coming ahead.
1: I mean, I feel your sense of dread or concern there. And it's a conversation that I've been having on a couple of occasions. Uh, and I think post-COVID-19 in particular is going to bring that uh, to light. But, but you know, it was a very interesting observation that you made there that the biggest amount of conflict in South Africa right now or the the, the festering conflict in South Africa at this point in time is not even uh, between rich and poor. and And that's usually what... Whether it be politicians, whether it be poli- um, analysts, that's what they throw out. You know, it's it's sort of that divide, that inequality, that f- economic inequality between people. That is the biggest concern at the stage. What you're saying is, is that, no, it's between within the middle class, but between black and white people. Why do you think that is the case? What is the big difference there? Because surely me and my little comfort, comfortable space in green leafy suburbia, whether I'm black or not... Um, you know, I, I'm still sort of living a comfortable life. I also have uh, the enjoyment of, of, of popping off to the Woolies and, and doing my shopping there and talking about willies as opposed to uh, a long queue outside a general dealer in the township.
0: Well, you know, I mean, uh, bitterness is not always a, a result of deprivation. I mean, there, there are many sources of, of anger and, and that, they're not all about being poor. Mm. Um you know the other really, really important fundamental things come into into politics like pride and humiliation, um, and and that's what race and racism is about. You know, but before it's about hunger, it's it's about it's about very deep emotions. Um, mm. you, you know, and and you know this is a country where. There was a political transition in 1994. There was much less of an economic transition. Um, you know, you, you you had a situation where, you know, the professions for many many years were as white as before, and their culture was white. It was, you know, in retrospect, it was a it it was a recipe for conflict. Um, but I think that in tough economic times, that that conflict um, deepens uh, because the stakes get much much higher. Mm-hmm. Um they're, they're about economic opportunity as well. Um, so yeah, I mean I think that a a mix of cleavages and emotions go into political conflict um and and economic is is one of them, but there are many others.
1: No, I mean, I I find that absolutely stunning. I mean, uh, I'm I'm basically just a couple of seconds short of asking, what is the solution to all our problems, Johnny Steinberg? But (laughs) I guess that you don't have that immediate answer. But the nice thing about what your work does is to, again, peel away what the problems are underlying many of our communities and many of our societies, and more importantly, through telling the stories of, of the injustices that people are living through on a day to day basis, I mean, what what, what ne- what's next? What's your next project? Who are you for the next two years? Or maybe you're already in the process of those two years, <laughs> imagining being, um, so we can look forward to your next great literary so, piece of work. Well,
0: you, you're going to laugh, but the next project is is very very difficult, uh, very very different from from all the rest. Um, it's it's about the marriage of Nelson and Winnie Mandela.
1: Wow. Um, oh. That's, that's so, a stunning one. <laughs> I actually know someone who was busy working on on a book about Winnie Mandela in particular. And obviously, a huge portion of that has to look at the marriage between the two of them. And I think it's one of those things where, uh, you know, Winnie Madikizela Mandela has always been cast as a, either a villain. Or alternatively, we've always romanticized this this beautiful union between the two of them and that they split their ways with a big smile on their faces and, you know, <laughs> warm hugs. But but. We forget that, they, that this was these were two human beings who were married to each other, yeah. and to make matters worse, Hubby was gone for twenty-seven years. Yeah, while she suffered well, under difficult, uh, you know, under tremendous difficulties. So that would be an extremely uh, interesting uh, piece of work that you're going to be doing. I hope so. I hope so.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, you know, there the, are the, the two stories really, and the one, as you say, is about these two human beings who were really madly and crazily in love in the late 1950s. They were absolutely besotted with each other.
1: Mm.
0: And, and they really spent two years together, and then, then it was over. Then it was a long, long period of waiting. So partly the book is about what, what happens in two people's heads when, they, when they're waiting literally for decades to be reunited. What, what happens to, to each one inside the other's head? But then there's a whole other story because they as people and the marriage itself were mythical. You know, there were these political entities. So, you mm, know, a marriage mm. is a political thing. Theirs was a political one. And what they did with that marriage was exactly the opposite. You know, he he used the marriage as a vehicle to, to reconcile. You know, she used the marriage as a vehicle to say, I will not forgive the past. I will not forget the past. Um, mm. you, you know, it's incredible that this very, very famous marriage was at the center of the South African struggle. And in the last years of that struggle... What they wanted to do with the marriage was exactly the opposite. She wanted apartheid to end. She thought apartheid only could properly end um, through an insurrection. He believed that the only way to avoid civil war, war was through negotiation. So you have these polar opposites in this marriage. It it's, makes it really mm, interesting. Mm. To-
1: I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. These two people that got together. Um, you know, besotted with each other. And then eventually the two of them have two completely different world views, com- two completely different ideas about yeah. what the way forward is. And guess what? Today we're still debating it, isn't it?
0: Well, it's amazing that, that today they still represent these, these polar opposites about, polar opposite understandings of what actually happened in 1994 and what mm-hmm. the transition was about. Um, what 's been left undone, what was right, and what was wrong they they both re- they still represent the you know the the two poles of this great question hanging over south africa
1: but Johnny, I mean going through your experiences, having looked at um, you know looking at the world, looking at South Africa, our experiences, um, being a professor of African studies. You, you have had the opportunity to not just look at South Africa, but obviously look at other African countries so we can learn from their history, from their experiences, uh, from their uh, achievements, from their shortcomings and their failures, all the way through to our uh, failures and shortcomings and, and, you know, what makes this country great and what makes it suck at times. And, and you know, that's just a fact It, it you know, at times you look back at South Africa and you're like, wow, guys, we can do so much better. Ultimately, I mean, what is your hope? And then I'm not going to ask you about what we do to fix it. I think people claim to know how to fix it nine out of ten times are wrong about it. But what is your hope for this country, for for this South Africa? So I'm going to ask, I'm going to answer that
0: question very, very modestly, and and hopefully not too modestly.
1: Um,
0: but it's it's really that we can very, very quickly develop the maturity to come out of this very deep very scary economic crisis um, in a way that's sober in a way that's sensible in a way that doesn't pull the country apart politically in, in a way that that gathers together some form of common purpose and and that sounds like an incredibly modest and even maybe a boring aspiration um, but but I think that these these times, you know, could become quite fragile, and that's it's it's an important thing to hope for. Um, it's a, it's a bit of sobriety and and collective purpose going forward. They're going to be they going to be sacrifices to make in the time ahead.
1: So, Johnny, just as a, a final one there, the award, um, and of course, you you know stranger to awards but let's talk very quickly about this one that you received i just want to make sure that i have the correct name the recht milan 2020 prize uh for one day in bethlehem tell us all about it what's the award about what does it feel like to to obviously win this award
0: so it's um i mean in a way it's really a modest award because it's 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 just it's it's for it's given by a publishing house for its own publishers. So it's media 24. It's a big publishing house, but it's only a few publishers. Um, and uh, they, they give, I think five awards every year. Uh, Uh, one for Afrikaans fiction, um, another one for teenage novels. This one's for uh, nonfiction in English. Um, so, you know, there are only a few publishers, uh, participating. It's, it's in a way not a national award. I'm not. I'm not competing with everybody who's written a nonfiction book in that year. So it's um, you know it's nice to win, um, uh, but it definitely doesn't go to my head. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, no, no, fair enough. And that's why I guess uh, you didn't insist that I call you Professor Steinberg and, 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 you know, <laughs> send you a gift uh-uh. before this discussion. No, look, Johnny, it was absolutely a fascinating conversation with you. And, um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely going to get my hands on this, on this book. Um, I've been doing a lot more reading, but I still have a hell of a lot of catching up to do. And this is definitely one of them. You know, the sad thing about this, and hopefully you won't knock me in the nose when you meet me is, um, um, a Man of Good Hope is, has been a book that I've been looking for forever and I just haven't gotten around to, to A, getting it and then finally reading the darn thing because um, uh, at the time that it came out I was actually working very closely with refugees, a lot of Somali people in this country by the way and in the rest of Southern Africa and I just thought that that would almost be essential reading and I guess a lot of your work is actually essential reading for, for the vast majority of South Africans. So keep up the great work mate, I think it's absolutely stunning. Thanks. Thanks so much. Great stuff. Thanks. That was Johnny Steinberg.